0: Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. You know, as I read among the literature, there's certainly uh, overwhelming evidence and increasing evidence for intelligent uh, design in nature and and particularly in living systems. And it, um, you know, it really frustrates me that, the evidence for intelligent design isn't being taught in our schools and, and universities formally. We have so much evidence now for the um, existence of God, a creator, um, the, the biblical creator. We have so much evidence for the, you know, for the Bible, from so many aspects, from history, from uh, you know geology, you know the the global flood explains so much of what we uh, see in terms of the topology of the earth's surface um, and it, it can explain uh, the origin of ice ages or an ice age. Um, you know there are so many things that the the Bible can explain as well human behavior it can explain the origin of evil and and so forth so. It's uh, really something that, that, uh, again, I think uh, as Christians and if you're listening to this program, need to tell people about the resources that are available that point overwhelmingly to our creator God and especially design um, in nature. Um, And and one book too that um, I'm reading at the moment is... um, a new book out, published by Andrews University. It's called Design and Catastrophe, 51 Scientists Explore Evidence in Nature. And one of the articles that uh, I was reading in this book uh, caught my attention by um, a Dr. David Pennington. Now, I've uh, met David a few times and, and chatted with him, and he was actually... The first person in the world to replant a human ear using microsurgical techniques. Um, and he's certainly a, a recognized expert in the field of microsurgical um, reconstruction. And so um, he's an emeritus. Um, Associate Professor of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at Macquarie University. So that means he holds that title of Professor here in Australia, uh, which is a, a title of rank in Australia, um, permanently, uh, as uh, recognition. And uh, he was formerly head of the Department of Plastic Surgery at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney, Australia, and. His article really caught my attention. He, he's given it a, a quite a clever title, actually. Um, he called it Why Chimpanzees Can't Play Chopin. And it's... Um, I, I found he brings out some quite interesting and quite powerful uh, points in his um, article. He... Uh, writes that he had often pondered the amazing structure of the human body um, that allowed the fine patterns of dexterity that produced, for example, the Mona Lisa, um, the delicate carvings of Chinese ivory figures and, um, the, uh, and also the um, uh, very elaborately illustrated Bibles of many evil times but uh, also the fact that, uh, you know, people can handle, uh, you know, by hand assemble microprocessors and many other intricate works. And so what what he points out is that there's this ability in humans to perform manual tasks involving very fine movement and that this very fine movement differentiates the humans apart from all other primates or apes. Now, of course, it's often claimed that humans evolved from some sort of ape ancestor. And um, in in this article, which is in this book, as I said, uh, Design and Catastrophe, which has just been published by Andrews University... Um, in the United States, it's in Michigan in the United States. And um, his uh, article is in in this book as a a chapter and it's, um, you know, I think it's quite revealing. He points out that accomplishments such as being able to play Chopin's etude in G minor, in G sharp, sorry, uh, opus uh, 25, number 6, or again, the performance of brain surgery are uh, way beyond the technical ability of even the smartest ape. He points out, however, that in our education system, the proposed concepts um, in neurophysiology that dominate the field of human neurophysiology are actually based on uh, evolutionary biology. And, you know, this is certainly a worry. It is really a worry when we're sort of teaching, you know, students that um, we evolve from apes. And then we're teaching this sort of uh, as an underpinning factor of biology, which is underpinning then, you know, research in medicine and surgery and all this sort of thing. And it's, it's clearly wrong. We, you know, and I've talked many times previously on the these programs that you know the changes in the genetic code that are required to produce um, new body parts new organisms new functions are huge and they can't arise by random mutations it's just impossible we know that statistically and the the you know the number of times that you the mutations would have to perform be performed um, they're just you know wouldn't be. Enough time or space in the in the in the universe, you know, even if you had billions of years, which we know um, we don't have, <laughs> from uh, many other aspects um, and much other evidence as well. You know, life on Earth can't be that old. And I've mentioned this before. You know, just classic example: are erosion rates, but. It's interesting, he points out that the cognitive advances in the human brain have generally been attributed to its large size, and in particular, uh, the encephalocortical mass, which is genetically controlled. Um, there's actually a gene called uh, microcephalin which regulates the human brain size. So here we can see, again, there's a specific gene, a specific code in the DNA that regulates the human brain size. And there is a, um, a large amount of code um, that um, is especially relates to the human hand and especially the thumb and the index finger in this uh, parietal lobe, cortical areas, and... Um, Again, we can see that they're genes. There are uh, um, genetic codes that specifically construct these parts of the brain that are specifically associated with the operation of our uh, thumb and index finger. So, again, for You know, we we jump in. you know, human hands are are and feet, of course, are different to um, ape hands and feet. And what he's pointing out is that the code here, there's changes to the code that gives humans this special ability in terms of using their hands. And these changes in code, in the genetic code, provide for changes in the human brain that are now... Are now for us to operate and do these delicate operations. He also points out that the functional anatomy of the human hand is designed for precise movements that are impossible for other primates. Um, the longer and fully opposable thumb of the human is a chief example, producing the pincer or pen type grip, which is used in art and writing and in surgery, and that's something that's not possible um, in a chimpanzee. Now, uh, of course, Pennington points out that although there are claims that chimpanzees and other apes have uh, opposable thumbs and even opposable first toes, their function is for crude but strong grip an advantage in climbing trees. Um, and, of course, chimpanzees may even use crude tools. But their neuroanatomy precludes the precision movements uh, that would be similar to those movements in the human hand. So this is a very, very important differentiation. So while you know, chimpanzees can, can still grip things, they aren't capable of these precision movements and this is um, a very, very significant difference. So, Dr. Pennington points out um, that uh, there are many movements that the human hand can do that um, and and gives uh, humans uh, dexteritous activities that are not seen in apes, um, and so. He also points out that he can't think of an evolutionary advantage to the appreciation of Beethoven's Fifth, um, let alone the ability to play it. (laughs) Um, There's another aspect, of course, to human dexterity too that we can look at, and that is that uh, the sensory end-organ density of the human fingertips also is uh, represented by Um, a a special central, uh, -central, post-central parietal cortex of the brain and it has a large representation there. So there's a lot of nerves from the end of our fingers that actually go into the brain. And he points out that sensory discrimination is at least as important as motor function in the performance of fine movement as it is the rapid Feedback of position and stretch receptors in muscles and joints, rapidly informing the brain, especially the cerebellum, of the exact spatial positioning, accurate to fractions of a millimetre in some cases. So what he's saying is that we have such sensory precision, uh, well, well, we have such precision, locator um, or three-dimensional precision in our fingertips Um, and also with the uh, sensory nerve endings that are concentrated there in our fingertips that give us this ability to sense and locate, you know, highly, uh, very accurately and very rapidly. And again, you know, this is very, very fine movement. And his argument is, you know, this is not really essential for survival, but, it's, it's, but it gives us humans superior skill in so many ways. And let's remember again, all the time, that these extra skills and the, all these fine uh, features of our fingers are part of a genetic code that is stored um, in our, that generates these functions and storage capacity in our brain, as well as the actual physiology of the structures of our fingers as well. And so when you think of the chances of mutations randomly forming in a coordinated way, not only the nerves, but also the changes in brain structure to be able to utilise the information from these nerves. It's, uh, it's just powerful evidence for creation, um, He also um, points out that the world of neuroanatomy or brain anatomy was recently updated in an amazing way in late 2018 when the Australian neuroanatomist Professor George Paxinos announced the discovery of a new cerebral nucleus at the base of the human brain. Now, Paxinos is a world leader in his field and he found a structure he called the endo... Rest, uh, restiform, and it's probably pronounced differently, Endor Restiform Nucleus. Um, and he achieved this through a close study of thousands of thin slices of brain tissue. And after studying large numbers of mammals, including primates, Paxinos and his team have found that this nucleus is unique to humans. So this is pretty important. Moreover, the nucleus has neural connections with many other parts of the brain, indicating that it is most likely a coordination centre for fine motor function, which is an attribute exclusive to Homo sapiens. So those that are interested in the reference uh, for that, um, the uh, title is... um, well, the reference is an article by L. Mannix, M A N N I X, and it's titled Aussie Brain Mapper Discovers Part of the Brain That Lets You Play the Piano. And that was in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, November 22, 2018. Uh, but um, there's also a, um, if you Google that, You'll, the article will also come up on the uh, web. If you Google that title, Aussie Brain Mapper discovers part of the brain that lets you play the piano. The um, So it's quite um, fascinating, this um, uniqueness. And again, the um, as Paxinus um, has found, this is quite unique to humans. Um, now, uh, Dr. Pennington, the author of uh, the article on uh, why chimps can't play piano, he points out that while Paxinos um, believes in evolutionary theory, um, his discovery gives rise to some interesting questions. And one of this is based on the fact that a brain nucleus contains the cell bodies of many nu- neurons. And so its presence means that something cellular has been added to the basic primate cerebral blueprint, uh, if we can use that term. But like the fossil record, there seems to be no intermediate form of this structure. It just appears in the human brain and in no other. And so one of the questions is, um, how did it get there? Because this is a really powerful anatomical way that differentiates us from the apes um Pennington goes on to and, and I think actually before I go on that that is um, an important point that there's this the discovery of this um, endorestiform nucleus in the human brains that um, seems to be a control center that isn 't in the brains of other animals, including apes. Um, is, is very special and it also, again, you know, powerfully differentiates us from apes because to, for the genetic code to form a centre that actually coordinates all other parts and other functions of the brain that enables us to operate in this way, to arise by chance, not only for the code itself to arise by chance, but to code something that is coordinates with a whole lot of other complex functions is just you know, absolutely impossible. It's got to be designed. It's got to be deliberately designed and put there. And I th- again, the little points like this that are very subtle are very, very powerful evidence for creation. Pennington goes on, there are many other functional differences between the brains of humans and other animals um, and these include higher cognitive functions such as consciousness, speech, artistic and musical appreciation, uh, empathy, logical thinking including inference, um, hypothesis formation, memory and ideation to mention a few. The learning process in humans is therefore far more complicated than the behaviour patterns of other species. So that's quoting from uh, Pennington. He points out that another unique feature that human learning is transmissible to others due to speech and also the fine motor functions of writing. um, And also another aspect is our colour stereoscopic vision that permits... um, Um, a whole lot of aspects in terms of visual communication, uh, such as writing and symbols and these sort of things. And um, he argues that some of these attributes appear to have no evolutionary survival advantage. Um, And so, again, he points out this point that to him, The evidence that we're finding of the way, the human ability to carry out these fine motor skills bears witness to a privileged position of humans that was granted by a a higher power. And um, he concludes by saying, and I'll quote him, The unique functional anatomy of Homo sapiens differentiates us so widely from other, even superficially similar mammals, that it is perhaps best expressed by this statement. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Genesis 1.26. So this, um, I think, yeah, it's a very, very interesting uh, article in the book uh, Design and, and Catastrophe. Um, it's interesting that Pennington uh, talked about the uh, vision and the human eye and uh, there was another interesting article in um, the, uh, the book uh, Design and Catastrophe and it was called The Human Eye, Designed for Vision. And um, the author, author, Jesse Martin, um, points out that the human eye is a fascinating example of optical and anatomical design human vision has a significant functional contributions ranging from uh, tear film cornea um, the lenticular optics the aqueous and vitreous humor the pupil and the retinal layers and he points out that vision is possible due to the interaction of light with the optics of the eye and the efficient way uh, an image is transferred to the retina and then converted into information and then transmitted to the processing sensors of the brain. And at each component of the eye, the tear film, the coroner, the iris, the crystalline lens and the renter, there's less room for error for it to function efficiently. Um, and so there's some amazing aspects uh, of the human eye that give human vision, its great accuracy and precision. And um, it's probably something that um, I'll talk about um, in a in another program. But why I just mention it here again is that these aspects of the human eye give it a quite great accuracy and precision. And when you couple that with the nerves and the sensory uh, aspects of our fingers and the ability of our hand and the shape of our hand and the ability of our hand to carry out these very, very precise movements. When you couple that with the ability of the eye, with the amazing functional ability that it has, it provides, again, a very, very powerful combination now, again, evolutionists have to see that this coordination arose by chance. And it's quite fascinating, actually, that I know uh, I've read an article where the great um, or the sort of uh, the widely known evolutionist uh, or proponent of evolution, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, who's uh, uh, certainly written so many articles, um on uh, evolution, one of the aspects that he argued at one stage was that the eye was really poor design, and um, you know that it was sort of it was a very backward uh, design. I can't just at the moment remember the exact details of uh, his argument. but of course, as they did further research into this, they found, well, hang on. This there's, there's a particular reason why this structure is reversed, and that is because part of the uh, sensory equipment in the eye, the optic nerve, there's uh, heat generated and it requires cooling. And uh, so the, the way it is arranged in the eye enables it for it to be cooled. If it was designed the way that uh, Dawkins suggested it should be designed for obvious reasons, then it uh, would be very difficult to have the cooling that it requires. And to me, this points out, you know, just this example. that Here we have human logic and everything says, oh, hang on, this is a crummy design. And often this happens with with other parts of the... um, you know, human anatomy as as well. You know, people have said, oh, well, if it was really designed by God, why didn't he do it this way, do it better? But then, as we do more research into it, we find, whoa, hang on, there's a reason for that. Now, for me, what this is saying is intelligence such as humans, and obviously Dawkins is, you know, quite an intelligent guy. He writes beautifully. He's been granted a professorship at Oxford University and so forth. So, but... Even he didn't get the complete picture. But yet when we look at it, the complete picture is there. How can random mutations produce this structure that works? Now, people argue, oh, hang on, there's natural selection. You know, the the earlier eyes that built the other way, you know, all failed. But hang on, the eye isn't going to work at all unless you have all the complex functions working at the same time. And this is the you know the the classic um, case that for a, a machine to work you have to have all the components lined up and just right. Um, you know where I work, we build machines, we build manufacturing machines, and I know talking to engineers, they build the machine. It's nearly all there. One little part isn't quite right. Might be just a little bit bit too big, um, and it. It's rubbing on something. There's not enough clearance that they didn't allow under certain conditions uh, and the whole thing stops working um, under certain conditions. And they've got to go back and, and redesign. So you've only got to have one little bit out and the machine doesn't work. It's useless. So, and when you're looking at living systems, one little thing out often means that totally it won't survive. So so many things are so complex they've all got to have evolved with this, the right random mutations, all at the same time, and this is what one of the functions that makes evolution so impossible. Well, I've been absolutely fascinated by learning about um, this extra part of our brain that we have, and the ability that, um, with the explanation for how we have fine movement, and we certainly didn't evolve from apes. We were created in the image of God. You've been listening to Faith and Science. And remember, if you wish to re listen to this program or uh, check up on the references and and that, um, just um, Google 3abn Australia or one .org.au and click on the radio listen button. And remember, too, to tell your friends about these programs put links up on your social media pages let other people know the amazing evidence we have for our creator god i'm dr john ashton have a great day